Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Opposing Points podcast. My special guest today is Paul Manafort, author of Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, But Not Silenced. As campaign chairman for Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign, Paul put into place the structure that delivered the nomination and general election victory to Donald Trump. I hope you enjoy this conversation. And if you do, don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel. Thanks for watching. Hey, Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing well, David. Thank you. Good. Um, it's, uh, it's interesting to see a man so vilified, you know, by the media. Um, there were probably a lot of uh, things going on, a basically universally dominated narrative across all media outlets. Um, and I'm curious um, about how it felt to kind of watch your image, knowing that knowing yourself and looking at how the media was portraying you. You know, did you ever, did you find comfort in kind of knowing who you are or, or were there ever, were there ever times where it, it kind of hit you, um, you know, and, and you lost a little bit of hope? I never lost hope, but I can't say that I wasn't confused and, uh, and stressed. <laughs> uh, I did know who I, who I was and am. Uh, I knew what they were saying wasn't true. Um, it felt like a movie. I felt like I was watching a movie that was you know, a, a, a drama narrative, which was not true, but I was afraid that where this was going, I wasn't going to like the ending. <laughs> and, uh, and it was, uh, that sort of made it surreal. Um, what I couldn't understand at the time, uh, especially in 2016 during the campaign and uh, leading up to Trump taking office, was how there would be this universal networking going on that uh, would be keying off of facts that were false. Uh, there were a few of the reporters who would write stories about me that never, you know, I didn't expect anything other than that. They didn't, they didn't care about the truth in the past and they weren't going to care about it now or then. But there were reporters who I knew, who were friends of mine, or at least I thought were, or at least were, were honest reporters who knew the kinds of things I had been doing in my political career around the country and around the world, who were writing about the Russian narrative as if my role in it was real. And they knew better than that. Um, and so that's what was disappointing. Uh, and then as we got into, uh, into the Trump administration, you know, I always thought, okay, this is politics. The campaign will be over. Trump's elected. Now we'll move on. And you know, that's politics is over. We deal with governing. But it, we never switched off. Uh, the, uh, the woke left, which controlled the Democratic network at that point in time, and the Obama-Hillary cabal <laughs> were intent on destroying Donald Trump and everybody around him, um, which was a new, new thing. I mean, it was a new experience. So when I hear about this, Hypocrites talk about January 6th being the biggest threat to democracy. They're the same people who did everything they could to destroy Donald Trump's presidency based on a hoax that they knew was a lie. And, uh, and so, but as we got into that, when they, when Michael Flynn was, was attacked for meeting with ambassadors in his role as the designee national security advisor, I knew the game wasn't going to stop. And then when, when Sessions, uh, recused himself, I was concerned. That was the first point when I thought this thing could go on for a while. 
Um, and then, of course, when the special counsel was appointed, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I knew we were in a new place and I knew it was not a good place because special counsels are toxic. And they, what they're appointed for and what they end up doing usually are two different things, which was exactly true in this case as well. Uh, yeah, the whole concept of an independent counsel law mm. was not renewed by the Congress because of the abuses of the independent counsels. And so when Mueller was appointed as a special counsel, which meant he had the authority of a U.S. attorney, not of an independent counsel, uh, and treated and acted as if he was an independent counsel and got away with it, is when I realized that the, the system was totally cooked. Yeah, I mean, we see this in journalism now. Basically, if, if you take a side that's not the you know, narrative, you get kind of tossed aside. And some people have managed to continue their integrity, like Glenn, Glenn Greenwald, for example, Matt Taibbi. Um, they've been on the right side of this thing, although they're viewed as classically um, liberal people. And there are certain things that are just, you cannot write about um, until it's accepted. For example, um, like, you know, masking children, we didn't say there would be any side effects or learning loss or anything. And now we're dealing with that now. And it's, it's suddenly allowed to be written about that this is yeah. Uh, happening. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a dangerous time in, in journalism. Um, you know, I saw this, I, I read, I write about that in the book and the concerns I have on that specific point you just made, mentioned, but I saw it early on and I couldn't believe it in the campaign in 2016 when uh, J Jim Rudenberg wrote an article from the front page of the New York Times. And in that article, he talks about how he no longer could be objective as a journalist. And he's, as an editor now, it's his, as a reporter now, it's his job to expose the danger that Donald Trump uh, poses to the American uh, people. Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe that story. I mean, it was a front page story. So it's not on the editorial page, but it'd be, it was a harbinger of what was to come. Mm -hmm. And it's where media is today, where they think they're the, the uh, prosecutor, judge, and jury of what is the truth and what is uh, susceptible to talk about. And Twitter is the means by which they gain their fame. Uh, and that's a very dangerous thing. Now, I think it's starting to get exposed. I mean, media is not looked at around the, you know, in the United States anymore as a credible source of news, as crazy as that sounds. Um, and people are basically going to the networks that, the, that have their position, reflect their positions. But that's a, that's a bad thing. That's a dangerous thing. And I talk about that in the book. And, uh, we have to find a way to get around that. Uh, and, uh, and what has surprised me, when I was growing up in politics in the United States, I mean, there were a lot of moderate to liberal journalists who would talk about their, their, their positions, but they'd reflect the other side as well. The Al Hunts, the, 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 the Shields, the Mark Shields of this world. Uh, they, I would have expected, mm -hmm should have called the journalism out for what it is what it was becoming in, in 2016 17 but they sat back and let it happen and, and that surprised me that surprised me i think you hit the nail on the head as, as far as the respective news outlets um I'm, I'm a millennial and and i've kind of always been into politics just kind of looking at all the sides and pieces and examining them and making decisions for myself but i think a lot of people kind of have their beliefs led by their feelings toward things. And then those people are naturally going to gravitate towards either MSNBC or Fox. And it creates, I have a fear that we have an, the polarization in this country is going to get even worse. The journalistic standards are just 
going to get even worse. There's going to be, you know, right-wing media that, that left-wing media, and they'll both be like, well, it's all fake news. And, and what we have left is we don't, people don't have a sense of what the truth is. Well, you know, I don't think it'd get worse. <laughs> it's pretty bad, I think. Yeah. But I think what's going to happen, what is happening, is local news is becoming more relevant. Uh, and, and when you think about what's going on with, with uh, school board meetings and the, and the, and the, 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 the crime, crime in the streets and the borders, the, the pressure on the national media is being driven by what's happening in those local scenes that mm -hmm. they can't ignore. And, uh, and that's hopefully going to be a mechanism by which we'll be able to bring some sense of, I won't say uh, objectivity, but news coverage uh, to, to, this, to the story. And I talk about that in the book. And my, my concern is, in the, you look at the Biden administration now, and it is, its starting point was at the worst place of the left when, when Obama ended. I mean, so it's gotten worse because of, Obama, of Biden uh, tolerating, I mean, I, to tolerating the Department of Justice calling parents terrorists. I mean, it's a crazy thing creating an office of disinformation in Homeland Security. I mean, these are dangerous things to our constitution. If Republicans had done something like the, that, you know, we would be pillared and, and you'd be re reading about it every single day. What I don't understand is how the, the ACLU uh, and, and moderate Democrats can accept those kinds of, of infringements on our constitutional rights, but they do. And it's gonna be incumbent upon us as Republicans and conservatives win this election in November and to bring things back to, to some sense of center. I'm not saying that uh, I mean, we've got to expose the assaults on our freedoms. We have to do that. And if we don't, if we only focus on Hunter Biden uh, or Joe Biden and not on the, the infringement by the Department of Justice on, uh, on parents and, and, and conservative organizations, then we, will be, then we should be thrown out as well. Mm -hmm. And one of one of the prompts for your new book coming out, uh, "Political Prisoner: Persecuted, Prosecuted, but Not Silenced," uh, is that everything most Americans think they know about you is false. Um, and as I said before, a lot of the American public assumes pretty bad things about you. <laughs> um, so, what were what were the uh, the falsehoods exactly told about you? Because I think there were a list of things that you were you know kind of tried for or, or convicted of or how that was working well, yeah they're they're i mean it'd be a lot more than two, a couple of minutes i have to talk to you about it but i mean what <laughs> they did first of all you have to understand tactically what they did because then, mm -hmm. then you appreciate what they did to me yeah I mean, they this this uh, the tsunami was when it started it really after trump was not was elected it was impossible to talk into and then you had the House Intelligence Committee and the Senate Intelligence Committee doing investigations and dripping out uh, 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 misinformation about my historical background in politics. Mm -hmm. um, when they ended up indicting me, and, and so because I was sort of a target of the investigation before the special counsel was elected, appointed, I had to be careful about what I said. My lawyer said, you can't really be talking in the public too much. And my point was, look, these are lies. I, I mean, I, there's a record that I could point to, and they wanted me to save it for the for the committee hearings. Mm -hmm. The committee's never interested in talking to me. The House committee, the Senate committee, they didn't want to talk to me because they knew the they knew the truth already. Um, and then when Mueller was appointed and they went after me, they put a gag order on me, and I, so I couldn't talk. 
And then all of a sudden the drips out of government anonymous sources to favored media types created this image of me so that which Weissman understood, try Manafort in the court of public opinion, then we'll get him in, a, in, a, in, the, in the courtroom of justice. And that's what they did. And, and because of the gag order, I, there was nothing I could do to protect my net myself. Even to the point where when they were talking about uh, one of the most repeated things was saying I was you know, a link to Russia. I spent my whole political career internationally and domestically fighting Soviet Union, fighting Russia uh, in, in Ukraine. And when a foreign, a, a foreign service officer in the government of Ukraine, who I had been working with during the Yanukovych presidency, wanted to write an op-ed piece for the Kiev Journal in, in, in Kiev, uh, saying that Paul Manafort not only wasn't pro-Russian, he helped us prepare to become part of Europe. Well, he said, he, this was his idea. He wrote the article. He sent it to me saying, I'm published this article. There were several things that were just factually wrong in the article, uh, nothing important, but factual. So I corrected them. Mm -hmm. Weissman used that and said, I was trying to violate the gag order. Now, it wasn't my article. I, it wasn't my idea. It was the Kiev Post in Kiev. I mean, there was not going to be any jury selected in Kiev for Paul Manafort. Uh, but it was meant to intimidate me so that I couldn't, uh, uh, wouldn't do anything here in the United States, even though the, the gag order was constitutionally questionable. Uh, and they, uh, it, was, it would have been a lot of money and everything else. And I was, my money was being drained on my legal case. But tactically, they understood that. And then they had the judge who basically could have been sitting at the prosecutor's desk uh, saying to me that if there's one more slip like this, I'm going right to jail. Mm -hmm. That was the way they intimidated me. So, so the process, and I talk about all of that in the book, but the process of the issues that they exposed, I mean, it, the, I was pro-Russia. I mean, and that Ukraine was pro, was during the, my, the term of the candidate I like the president was pro-Russia. Historically, 100% false. In fact, we worked with the US government, we worked with the Obama administration, and we worked with the EC to do all the changes that were necessary in Ukraine, legally, economically, regulatory-wise, to comport with Ukraine's uh, uh, structures with European requirements. This was mm -hmm. all public news. It was all public news. Uh, and yet to say that I was working with a pro-Russian uh, uh, president was 100% incorrect. Um, and they knew it, uh, as an example. Then on the fair violations, when they indicted me, what they indicted me for was violating the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And they indicted me criminally, which hadn't been done, I think it was done once in the whole history of the act going back to the 1930s. Mm -hmm. um, and they indicted me on something that I already worked out with the Department of Justice, the fair unit, and, and without no penalties, no civil civil uh, 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 judgments. It was worked out the proper way, the way it always was, and there was and, and I did what the, what the department wanted me to do. Weissman nixed that deal, took control of the matter, and then created the the, the, the fake violation, and, and then tacked onto that. Uh, money laundering, so it, it made it a conspiracy, tacked on money laundering, so he could go back my whole life and get, try and capture all the money I'd made for 25 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that it was, again, that kind of violation of the, of the standards. I go on and on and on, but this gives you a sense of it all. Yeah. The, 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 uh, the, the foreign bank accounts, I gave all the foreign bank accounts to the Department of Justice and the FBI in 2014, 
helping them on an investigation they were doing against other people and to show them how the whole process worked. There, there was nothing being hidden. I literally gave them the names, the accounts, and showed them the way things would flow. Mm-hmm. In the book, I go through all of this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, and, and, uh, but what, what the experience taught me was when you're in the crosshairs and you have a media that's willing to be compliant to whatever the woke agenda is, it's almost impossible to fight back in the current environment. Yeah, I mean, what's 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 also scary, and maybe you had some thoughts on this as well, as you went through that kind of what we call the due process here, you know, you you are a well-known figure. You have probably more resources than the average person or the average American. And it just kind of, I don't know if you would agree with this, but I mean, how is the average, they can easily be destroyed. I mean, with that, with most people don't have the resources when they're being uh, gone after. And I talk about that in the book a lot. You're right. Uh, and in fact, there's a section in the book where I deal with my time in prison mm-hmm. and, uh, and dealing with a lot of people, a lot of prisoners who were abused by the system. They got, got double teamed by federal prosecutors and state prosecutors and were put in prison for terms that should have been, you know, one-tenth of the percent of what it was for nonviolent crimes. Uh, but they were uneducated or they were poor. Uh, they were, a lot of them were, were minorities. And, uh, and they never had a chance. And I talk about that. But then I also talk about how they're not even helped by the prison system to prepare for re-entry. Uh, you, know, the, the, you, you look at the laws and the, and the programs of the BOP, they look great, but they don't exist mm-hmm. on paper. And I talk about that and things that need to be done there. I mean, one of the not appreciated uh, uh, things about the Trump administration is Trump was a hero to the black and Hispanic people in prison. Uh, because of what he did in dealing with the First Step Act and in trying to release all nonviolent criminals from ex- excessive uh, penalties. And he, he showed way more sensitivity to their, their, their plight than any of the woke left or the AOCs or anybody in Washington had, had or, or have today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even the Biden administration, the champion of the, of the Black Hispanic community, has done nothing for them. Uh, it, it, when compared to Trump, it's like this. And, and I talk about that in the book as well. Okay. And uh, one of the interesting, uh, I guess, bedfellows I've, I found is that AOC was actually advocating against because you were put in solitary confinement and she was a, a voice against that. Um, do you ever find that kind of strange? <laughs> it was, well, it was appreciated actually because it showed the craziness of it all uh, because she was right in the concept. She wasn't supporting me but she was supporting the concept of yeah. putting somebody into solitary confinement, which is inhumane. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, I was put in there for my protection, supposedly. Um, and it was, protection was a nine by 12 cell, no windows. The door had a slot for the food to be put through. Uh, no ability to, to exercise and do anything outside of the room. Only ex- time I ever got out was to deal with my lawyers. But I was four, and a half, four hours away from my lawyers. It's where they sent me and... Uh, in the in the northern neck of uh, of DC, coverage Maryland, so I wasn't able to meet with them regularly. Um, there was no way it was for my protection. It was meant to break me. When I ultimately did get sentenced and went to prison, I was put in the general population. I had no problem surviving in the general population. With, and, I would, and I wouldn't have had with if I'd been in the general population during the the pre sentencing period as well. 
but it was a tactic by Weissman and the process and the government to uh, to break me to give them Donald Trump, which is what my whole uh, case was about. And how did you get th- get through that personally? Well, you, you have to sort of live in the present. You can't look at the past. You can't look at the inhumanity of it. You can't look in the future. You have to live in the present. And so between my faith, my family, the fact that I knew who I was and mm-hmm. this way, regardless of what would happen to me, it was wrong. And I, and I, and I shouldn't feel bad about myself, badly about myself. So I, with, with that as a framework, I then put a schedule together every day. And whether it was reading or doing exercises in the cell or my prayer time and, uh, and I built a day, a structure of a day, mm-hmm. uh, including practice of what I could do and prepare for my case, so that the time went actually fast. And there were days I didn't have enough time to do everything that was on my schedule because I had a schedule. And by doing that, you put you 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 get out from the oppression oppressiveness of it, and uh, and are able to be. I don't want to say productive, but. Uh, but in a sense, productive with how you handle your time and what you get to achieve with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think that's really helpful advice to, to people as well. Um, just if you can, you, you can use that same advice to get through any, any kind of hard times that people are going through. You have your, your order and stuff like that. Right. Um, what we're also seeing now is, uh, or, or what we were seeing and what we're still seeing is, is a lot of people on the left and some on the right are very obsessed with, you know, Russia and Trump and, using Russia as the strategy to take down Trump, that he needed Russia to win. Um, as the you know, campaign manager, how did you, how, how, what, what is with that strategy? Why are they so obsessed with it? Well, you know, the first time I heard that was right after our Republican convention, Trump was the nominee, and the Democratic convention was the following week. So we ended on Thursday, Friday, Trump went out to the campaign trail. I went back to, uh, to New York. Uh, the Democrats started their convention that following Sunday, that Sunday. So Ryan's previous, the chairman of the RNC, was going to have what we call a bracketing operation set up for Philadelphia to track what the Democrats were saying and doing, uh, and asked me to do a press conference with him on Sunday before the Democratic convention to announce the bracketing process and to kick it off. And so I said, okay, fine. During my, my, my comments in the Q&A afterwards, one of the reporters asked me, well, today, Robbie Mook said uh, that uh, there's Russian collusion going on with the Trump campaign uh, to help him be elected president. And what, what do you know about this? And I looked at it, I turned to Ryan and I started laughing. I said, well, this is ridiculous. I said, this is, if, if what Mooks is saying, he really said, because I don't know, I didn't hear him say it, then this tells me that they're really desperate uh, and that they've lost control of anything that's relevant they think they can win the election on. Now, I said that as an absurdity, but in fact, I was exactly right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and we now know, thanks to the Durham investigation, that in early July, uh, John Brennan briefed Obama that the Clinton campaign was going to start a fake Russian narrative before the Republican convention uh, beca- to deflect from her server problems and her other problems. Uh, we also know now that despite the fact that the White House knew about this, the CIA knew about this, the FBI opened up Crossfire Hurricane at the end of July, right after our convention, uh, to do an investigation using F- law enforcement resources 
on a narrative that they all knew was false. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it grew from there. So the whole house of cards, the whole hoax on the American people, the whole system of lies started with everybody in the, in the democratic system being aware it was not true. And, and yet they built and built and built because they, one didn't want to elect Donald Trump. And then when he was elected, they couldn't understand it. Uh, and they were going to do everything they could to destroy his presidency. The biggest threat to democracy is not what January 6th represented. It's what those people who are now claiming January 6th represented the threat did for five years uh, to destroy the president, elect, the duly elected president of the United States. Right. And, and so make it a process, and this is important, mm-hmm. impeachment into just a tool of a majority in the House of Representatives. That's a very dangerous precedent. But the Democrats have established it now. If you control the House, you control the ability to impeach a president on no information, on no evidence. Uh, and that's destructive of democracy. That's destructive of a presidency. And you know, the future, that's the precedent. Right. And so now we have you know, Biden in 2020, and we have this Russia-Ukraine thing going on. Um, how do you think... Uh, do you, how do you think a Trump presidency would have prevented or handled that differently? And what do you think the go forward plan should be as far as that? Well, there wouldn't have been a, an invasion of Ukraine if Trump was reelected. There's no doubt in my mind about that. When you look at the, the events as they happen, you have to go back to 2014. Um, and, uh, and when Biden, when, when Putin invaded Crimea, and took over Crimea, and the the Obama White House basically just slapped him on the wrist and then moved on as if it was nothing. And then they destabilized Eastern Ukraine, uh, setting up a uh, a provisional government on duly elected property uh, property of Ukraine. Putin understood, got away with it when Obama wouldn't provide lethal weapons to help Ukraine during that crisis. Putin understood what that meant. When Trump came in, the first thing he did was he gave the lethal weapons that Ukraine wanted that Obama wouldn't give. That sent a signal. Trump also let Biden, uh, Putin know, look, I respect what you have to do as your as president in Russia, something the media never understood. Respecting somebody's ability, doing what they're doing versus approving of what they're doing are two different things. Uh, but don't violate certain lines. And one of the lines is you don't invade democracies. And, uh, and, and Putin didn't. Biden gets elected, brings the same foreign policy team of Obama into, the, into his government, different positions, but the same team. Putin sees that. He then sees the, the fiasco in Afghanistan. He, sa- he sees Biden saying, I'm not giving you any more lethal weapons. So the lethal weapons stop flowing. And Putin said, okay, I'm back to where I was in 2015. I, can, I know what I can do. And he did it. And he warned everybody. He warned for six months before he invaded. He was letting them know he was going to do it. He was moving the troops in the right position, everything else. Nothing. No pressure back, no pushback, anything. Uh, and then when the moment it happened, that fit whatever his agenda time was, he invaded. And the only, the, the only surprise to Putin was nothing that Biden did. It's how the Ukrainian people defended themselves. Because Putin didn't understand something which I did, frankly, because of all the polls I did in Ukraine. Putin thought that because half of the country is Russian ethnic, that if he invaded, they would all just fall into line. Mm -hmm. But he didn't understand 
that yes, that part of East, that Ukraine, the Eastern part, you know, was Russian ethnic. They wanted to protect their language. They wanted to protect their culture. They wanted to protect the Russian religion, Orthodox religion, but they also wanted to protect their freedom. And they knew the difference between freedom under Russia and freedom in, in Ukraine, uh, where they, they were truly free. Uh, and so they resisted with a fierceness that didn't surprise me. Uh, it surprised Biden because he didn't understand Ukraine. Um, it's, it surprised a lot of Europe, not the Poles. The Poles understood it, actually. And they were in the front line of defense for, uh, for the Ukrainians in, that, in those early days, which was very important, and put the pressure on Germany to do what I think uh, Putin was surprised about when Germany came out way stronger than the United States in defense of the Ukrainian people. So when you look at it in that context, Mm-hmm. If Trump was president, there wouldn't have been any Ukraine invasion, um, and Ukraine would become a part of be, be, becoming part of, of Europe. My concern right now is I think the Ukrainian people can win the war, but I worry that they're going to lose the peace uh, because the fatigue level is very high now in the West. Uh, the media is you know not even covering it very much right now. It's been relegated to the bottom front page or the second and third pages and uh, you know late in the news. But Putin understands all of that. Mm-hmm. So he's changed his tactics. He's been incrementally taking over you know, the eastern part of the borders of Ukraine. We, the weapons still haven't gotten to Ukraine. I mean, they're, they're, you know, you know, and, uh, and, and he will then sue for peace. And the West will jump, jump into that. And, uh, and when they do, Putin is going to try and gain some of the concessions that he couldn't get on the battlefield including to have the borders of Ukraine change uh, and giving Putin the access to the Black Sea that he, that he doesn't have. Um, and then, so that's my concern. And uh, Biden can bark as much as he wants, but he has no bite and Putin knows it. Mm-hmm. So my last question before we let folks know where they can, uh, when and where they can buy the book is, you know, you've served under quite a few administrations um, and, and you've been in politics a, a long time. What do you think are the main changes in the style of governance under Democrats and Republicans since that time? Well, the biggest change is we, you know, Democrats and Republicans used to be able to disagree and still, you know, work together. We're not, they're not able to work together right now. Um, And, and that's a very dangerous thing for the future. I mean, gerrymandering has allowed both sides to elect their most uh, fervent uh, uh, members. Uh, but it's, I mean, and I, I say this from a partisan standpoint, but Republicans still always show the willingness to cooperate. I remember Reagan saying to me once, and he used to talk about this actually, that, uh, you know, we fight, I fight Tip O'Neill every day. He was the Speaker of the House, Democrat Speaker of the House, a very partisan Democrat, uh, very much, very liberal to Reagan's conservatism. But at the end of the day, Every now and then, Tip comes over and we have a drink and we talk about uh, sports or things like that. And that was the attitude back then. Um, it's not the attitude today. Mm-hmm. And, and, and my fear is, I mean, I think the, the left in the Democratic Party, they don't care that they're going to get wiped out. The party's going to get wiped out this November. Because I think the AOCs of this world see that in a plurality of Democrats in the House, the woke left part is going to have a disproportionate impact on that uh, on that caucus, and this is part of a long term game to them. I mean, taking over control of the Democratic caucus in the House and ultimately in the Senate is a prelude to them to then their next step of trying to take over the government. 
They, they try to do that with Biden, but he's inept. He's incapable of, of implementing their agenda. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's enough, you know, there are two important Democrats who have kept the institution from destroying itself. And, uh, and so they've got to retool their strategy, which they're doing. And that's why you're seeing, I think, the discarding of Biden now in the media and by Democratic politicians. He's, his usefulness is over. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they've moved on. So that's the biggest change is the ability of the parties to try and deal with the national interest versus their own partisan interest. And it's principally driven by the left who wants nothing to do with compromise and only wants victory. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, So where can people, uh, when and where can people buy the book um, and keep up with what you're doing with with, with your future? Well, the book is available August 16th. It'll be in the the bookstores, but it's available for pre-order today at Amazon. Barnes and Noble, Simon and Schuster, uh, and you know I'll be getting out on the on the campaign trail, so to speak, uh, talking about the book, and uh, and we'll be getting active in the social media, which I'm sure will light up uh, Twitter uh, uh, with uh, some of the more colorful hated hatred uh, that the left imposes upon me. But so be it. Uh, but I'll also be on places like Webkin and, and Truth and social things like that. All right, don't get banned too quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Thank you, not, Paul. I can't feel guilty about being banned for the truth. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate Thank your time. You. Thank you. Good to see you.